We are in uh, this series, the book of Acts. I love, I love, love, love this season. I love spring. Um, it reminds me of baseball, and baseball is God's gift to humanity. And uh, so spring and, and, and baseball, just it's a beautiful time. Uh, my wife and I are putting together our garden. Well, actually, she is, and I'm watching. And um, so she's, she's putting it together. But I was researching how to build a raised planter box because we have issues with gophers and squirrels and all that kind of stuff. And they eat the fruit of our labors, and it's very frustrating. So I was like, well, I'll elevate this and make them work for it at least. And as I was doing that, I came across this article on, um, on ABC News uh, that said that gardening is the number one hobby in America. I guess you guys don't garden. <laughs> number one hobby in America. And uh, in the same article, I came to uh, know and to learn that there was a number two uh, greatest hobby in America. And it surprised me, to be quite honest. It's genealogical studies. <laughs> what? So for nearly 200 million people in America, their, I guess, greatest interest in how to pass time and, and you know, have a hobby is studying gene genealogy. Okay. It's actually a $1.5 billion industry. <laughs> and I guess a lot of people are spending a lot of money on websites like you know, Ancestry.com and all this kind of stuff to learn about their genealogy. And in that article, it was linked to another article written by this guy named Gregory Rodriguez who published um, his article in Time Magazine. And he identified two reasons why people are so intrigued with genealogy. Number one is this, is because as you study and learn genealogy, you begin to get a context for your family and your origins. And the context of your family of origin and where you come from helps shape your identity answering the question, who am I? In part, genealogy can do that. A second reason why genealogy is so incredibly interesting for many people in the world is because it provides self-knowledge. What that means is you begin to know more about yourself, and as you begin to know more about yourself, you uh, grow in confidence and all kinds of stuff. And I find that incredibly interesting. And one of the reasons why I find it incre incredibly interesting is because as we approach the book of Acts, I can see how the book of Acts operates as a sort of spiritual genealogy. And what I mean is, as we read it, we're going to see a lot of historical stuff, uh, events happening, and uh, people doing stuff 2,000 years ago. And as we look at this, we have to realize it's not just merely them doing it. It's actually them, and they're a part of us. They are our heritage. And in some ways, as we see them operate and God working through them, we can actually develop our own identity from what we read and see. And it helps us to shape our meaning and significance in how we perceive the world and how we behave within it. But it also provides self-knowledge. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to experience the grace of God? A lot of people think the book of Acts is just boring, dead history. It's not that. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's invigorating. It's informative, and in a lot of ways, I believe it can transform the way you live. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to see, obviously, when you start a new series, you have to start in chapter 1. That's only fair. We are witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ by the Spirit. I know that's a big statement, but that's what we're going to learn this morning. We are witnesses of the gospel 
of the kingdom of God in Christ by the Spirit. We are witnesses is our identity. What we witness to is the gospel of the kingdom of God or, in other words, the good news of the kingdom of God. And that is in the person of Christ through or by the Holy Spirit. We're going to put all this stuff together this morning. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, help us, we pray. Standing before a king like you, we are but beggars. But the reality is these beggars have been made children of the king. And that is by your grace and your own desire and your own want. And so, God, thank you for all that you've lavished upon us from your abundance of riches and giving and granting to us your son Jesus and imparting to us his Holy Spirit. God, thank you for being with us. And I pray, God, that you would teach us now through the word that you have left for us and deposited a revelation of yourself, you would indeed reveal yourself in this text. Do it now, we pray. God, help my words to be meaningful. If anything is unhelpful, help everyone forget what I said. If anything is helpful, sow it in our hearts. And God, we need to hear from you. So we're asking you, teach us, Lord, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start a new series, obviously, when you start a new series in a particular book, you got to get a lay of the land. Because now I know that not everybody knows the book of Acts. Not everybody has read the book of Acts. And so we need to kind of get our feelers out there of what the book of Acts is all about. Well, first of all, the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke, who's a Greek physician. Very smart guy from all that we can tell. He had a really good grasp of language. His ability to use grammar and syntax and all kinds of stuff. And Koine Greek is amazing. It's beautiful. He's a smart intellect. But what's interesting is you read the opening verses of Luke and you read the opening verses of Acts, you can see that Luke is the author of both. And he intends for his compositions, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, to be read together. One is the beginning, the other is the continuation of what was began. And as we look in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you actually see that Luke intends to accomplish something by what he's writing. You can see that he says in verse 1 that there's a lot of people that undertook uh, the, the work to compile a narrative of the things that has been accomplished. In verse 2, it says that a bunch of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to, to people. And it seemed good uh, to Luke in verse 3 that he, after having followed all these teachings and all these eyewitnesses' testimony, to write his own orderly account. In verse 4, it says, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. As we look at the book of Luke and also the book of Acts, we come to realize that Luke as an author is seeking to write historical information that is trustworthy and true. He is researching people, asking them, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you experience? And he's cataloging and he's depositing it in the book of Luke as a testimony of what God had accomplished in the person of Christ and is for us to read and to treasure and also to have confidence and certainty that what these things are, what he says about these things, they are true. They're true. They're historical. It's facts. It's reality. What's also interesting, too, is if you read from Acts chapter 1 through 15, you see that the narrator's voice is in the third person which means he uses the pronouns, we, or excuse me, he uses they and he and she. So they did this, they did that, he did that, she did that. But then all of a sudden in chapter 16, all the way through the end of the book, 
the narrator's voice changes to first person, we, which tells us that up to chapter, 15, up to chapter 16, Luke was merely recounting and collecting and getting a bunch of information from eyewitnesses about what was happening in Jerusalem and, and uh, with Paul and all this kind of stuff. But then something switches in chapter 16 and Luke goes from somebody who is a historian and detective and reporter into somebody who actually gets in the same boat with the Apostle Paul and travels the known world with him. So what we get in the book of Acts is not just eyewitness testimony uh, from uh, secondhand, it's actually first-hand eyewitness testimony from the source himself, Luke, who's a travel companion with Paul. That's amazing stuff. That means as you read it, it's like, okay, I'm reading this dude's diary. We, we went here, we went there, this happened, this happened, it happened, it happened. That's amazing. That builds confidence and certainty that what it says actually happened. Now, when it comes to the book of Luke, we have, or excuse me, the book of Acts, you have to understand that Luke wants us to understand what it is he wants to convey, and he wants to convey the notion of the kingdom of God. As many of you know, when you watch a movie, what ends up happening is in the opening scenes, you're introduced to the main characters, and you get a feel for the plot, what's going on, and all this kind of stuff. Every good story has that kind of beginning. And so whenever you read a story, something like this, the opening episodes, the opening moments are going to dictate to you what you should expect as you continue to read. And so as we open the book of Acts, what we see is this, that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And Luke is constantly recording the concept or the theme of the kingdom of God. Look at this. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And in response to that, the disciples come to Jesus and ask this question, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So in the opening moments of the book of Acts, two references immediately are we are confronted with the kingdom of God. That's the theme. And then throughout the book of Acts, you see it sprinkled in all over the place, this concept or this theme of the kingdom of God. You see it in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And you can see it in Paul when he's at the shore of Miletus and he's meeting with the Ephesian elders. And he shows them his hands and he says, you guys know how hard I worked with these hands and labored for the gospel. And he actually says this in Acts chapter 20. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. So Paul says, the ministry I received is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I went around proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so we ask naturally the question, well, which is it? Paul, did you preach the gospel of God's grace or did you preach the kingdom of God? What is it? So what's our answer? Yes. It's yes. He did both. And they're synonymous. So when we think of the gospel of God's grace and we think about the kingdom of God, we're really thinking conceptually about the same thing. And that's a major topic for Luke 
throughout the book of Acts. In fact, as many of you remember this, the apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome and he was on house arrest. And for two years he was uh, under house arrest and as cruel as the Romans were, this is what they made him do. They made him pay rent for his own house that he was imprisoned in. That's messed up. So there he was, Acts 28. And in verse 23, as he comes to Rome, he wants to share about Christianity and the Jewish leaders of the day say, okay, we want to hear what you have to say. So they appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So what did Paul do when he was in Rome at house arrest? He proclaimed the kingdom of God. In the last two verses of the book of Acts, Luke reports that Paul lived there for two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So what you have in the book of Acts is really interesting. The beginning of it, kingdom of God stuff. Jesus is talking about it. The disciples are asking questions about it. All throughout it's sprinkled. Uh, throughout the, the book of Acts, there's sprinkled the kingdom of God. And then you get to the end. And what do we have? We have an episode of Paul still proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And by the way, Luke is a terrible author in the sense that Acts 28 uh, verse 31 ends and you have no resolution. You're like, uh, that's it? That's all you got? Yeah, that's right. Because you and I are living in Acts 29 and beyond. That's why the story isn't con uh, completely contained within chapters 1 through 28. It extends beyond, and you and I are living actors and characters within this story. This is still ongoing. This is still happening. We are witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ by the Spirit. So Luke is the author reporting historical, real-life stuff. And it all pertains to the central theme of the kingdom of God. That's the book of Acts in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it. You'll hear. Verse 1, Acts chapter 1. So let's get together in the text itself. By the way, I'm reading out of the ESV. I don't know if you know what the ESV is, but it is the extra spiritual version of the Bible. <laughs> Many different translations. I have the extra spiritual one. Just kidding. I've been using it since college, and I just got stuck, and I can't, I can't shake it. So... Yours may be a little bit different. So here we are, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, Luke says, let me stop there. What is the first book that he's referencing? Luke. Hey, you guys learned something. This is good. So in the first book, referring to the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Look at that phrase, Jesus began to do and teach. The operative word there is began. Began. So Luke is the beginning of what Jesus does and teaches. Luke is the beginning, which implication means that the book of Acts as the second book means that it is the continuation of what began. So it's the continuation of what Jesus does and what he teaches. Which means, according to Luke, the author of Acts, God is still at work. God is still very much working. Jesus is still doing what Jesus does, and he still continues to teach. But the question is, but still, like even today, 
Is God still working? Is Jesus still active even today? Oh, you bet he is. How is that possible? How is Jesus continuing to work and continuing to teach even today? And I believe our answer comes in part from John 14, where Jesus makes this incredible promise. He says this in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, implying that he is the original helper. I'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will do two things. He will teach you all things. And secondly, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus makes this promise. Hey, guys, there's another helper coming. The Father's going to send him. And he's going to do two things for you. He's going to help you and me. You're going to learn all things. He's going to teach you. And not only that, but in the moments when you forget it, he'll bring it back to remembrance. And what's incredible about this promise is that we see Jesus intends to continue his message and his mission in us through the Holy Spirit. So that all Christians who have the Holy Spirit can be confident about this fact. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will be taught the things of Jesus by the Holy Spirit And not only that, but in the moment of your need to recall and remember the teaching of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will be your provider. He is our helper. I don't know why we neglect him so much. I guess because he doesn't help us, like, remember where our car keys are and wallet. And sometimes those things take priority over what Jesus has taught us. But taken together, the, facts of, the fact that Acts is about the continuation of Jesus' work and teaching and that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, now we can confidently, everyone in this room who's a Christian, you can confidently say, absolutely, God is still at work. He's at work in me through his Holy Spirit. God is very much alive. God is very much doing his work. And brothers and sisters, that's That's awesome. So we are witnesses to the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now you can see where the by the Holy Spirit is coming in. But let's go back to the text. And what we're going to see is this. Remember, Jesus began to do and teach. He continues to do and teach. So there's a doing involves work and teaching involves content. You can't teach non-content. That's weird. So the question that we have is, well, what kind of work and what kind of teaching is the Holy Spirit continuing to do? What kind of work is there for us to do? What kind of teaching is there for us to learn? So what we'll do is we'll start with the content aspect of it, and then we'll tackle the work part at the end. So what is the content? The content. Look at this in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you ever wondered what in the world was happening in those, that, that time between Jesus uh, resurrecting from the dead and ascending, what was going on? For 40 days, he's wandering around. What are they doing, playing marbles? No, he's sitting with the disciples and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. That means Jesus 
felt so strongly about the importance of the kingdom of God that he spent his time teaching it and discussing it in the remaining moments he had with his disciples before he left them. You guys got to get this, he says. And what's really interesting is the kingdom of God is a central theme, not only in Luke and Acts, but through the whole Bible. The whole Bible involves the kingdom of God in some way, shape, or another. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus, around this time, they really did have a hope, though, for the kingdom of God. It's just that their hope for the kingdom of God was a little bit different. What their hope was, was for the restoration of the theocratic national nation of Israel. Like, that's what they wanted. They envision, when you say the kingdom of God, they envision a theocratic nation called Israel where God restores his rule over his people and there is a king who reigns in Jerusalem from the line of David. That is what they're imagining. And the reason why they imagine that is because most of these people are just awaiting that because it was promised to them in Moses and the prophets. Moses promised that there would be raised up a prophet who would lead God's people. And the prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they promised that there would one day be a restoration of the kingdom and a king would reign on David's throne. So naturally the people are going, dude, I can't wait for that. I can't wait. We're being oppressed by Rome. I can't wait for the restoration. It's going to be great. And we can actually trace this through the book of Luke Look at this in chapter 2, verse 25. We're introduced to a man named Simeon. It says this in 2.25 of, of Luke. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Told you. You guys with me? Hang in, hang in there. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What he was waiting for is deliverance for the nation of Israel from the bondage it experienced to that of Rome. He was waiting for the consolation where a theocratic nation called Israel would be reestablished. That was his hope. In verse 36 to 38, we meet a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were, look at this phrase, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That is, their hope was that Jerusalem, the city of David, would once again be delivered back to Israel where their king would reign. And then we fast forward to Luke chapter 23. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. You may remember him as the guy who took Jesus' body down from the cross. It says this about Joseph, that he was a member of the council, good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action of killing the Son of God. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. That is, he was anticipating the reestablishment of the kingdom like in the times of David and Solomon. And then even you look in Luke chapter 24, you remember this. There's two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're kind of distraught, and Jesus appears next to them, and they're having a conversation. So Jesus asks the question, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, stuff about Jesus. Where have you been? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and to crucify him. And the next phrase, 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you you feel the anguish we had hoped? But now he's dead. Besides all this, they say it is now the third day since these things happened. Or in other words, he's dead. He's gone. There's no hope now. Kingdom is never being restored. Jerusalem is never being reestablished. There is no king to sit on David's throne. All hope is lost. You can sense the disheartened disposition of these guys. Hope is gone. Kingdom is gone. What do we do now? Now let's think back to what Pastor Larry said a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Because I know a lot of people would like to push back on this. They're like, well, wait a minute. But just think about Palm Sunday. When all of the disciples were gathered together and they're lopping off branches and putting it in the street in order for Jesus to get on that colt and to ride into Jerusalem. Remember what they were crying out? They were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So even at the triumphal entry, the people who are gathered in Jerusalem were expecting a restored theocratic nation called Israel. And they expected that Jesus would be the one to bring it about. And yet, like Larry said a couple weeks ago, The people missed the significance of Jesus because their expectations were off. They thought it was going to be a physical, theocratic nation of Israel that Jesus is going to establish, when in fact he was doing much more than that. He was doing something beyond their wildest dreams. So what was Jesus doing? Well, Jesus was doing what he said he was going to do. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. This is how Jesus conceives of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and believe the gospel. What's really amazing about this phrase, repent and believe the gospel, or the kingdom of God is at hand, is it was before he ever went to the cross and ever rose from the dead. Jesus preached both the kingdom and the gospel before he ever died and rose from the dead. How how is that? If the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus, how can he preach that if he hasn't done that? It's because the gospel is well beyond just those simple historical facts. It goes beyond that. The kingdom is beyond just you respond and you make Jesus, you know, Lord of your heart. The kingdom is beyond that. What's really interesting, I think anyways, in Luke's chapter 17, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him questions about his conception of the kingdom of God. They, say, they ask him this uh, in verse 20, Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. I know some translations say it's within you, and I don't think that's right. Here's why. Because these Pharisees were the ones who were asking him. The same people whom Jesus in another place said, you are not in the kingdom of God because you do not believe in me. So the kingdom isn't in us. It's in the midst of us. And if the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is in our midst, and it's before the, re- the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we can conclude this. The kingdom of God culminates in Jesus. 
Jesus is the central figure. Jesus is the one to whom all things are pointing. Jesus is the one who we are, we are to exalt and highlight and to centralize in all things. Jesus is the point. Now, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, in his first coming, what he's meaning is, by my virgin birth, by my obedient life, by my death, by my resurrection and ascension, I have inaugurated the kingdom of God. Heaven has come to earth. I'm here. I ain't going nowhere. That's good news. But that also means that the triumphal entry, the bloody cross, and the empty tomb, those are all elements of Jesus' coronation ceremony. You see, when we think about kings getting coronated or queens being coronated, we think of pomp and circumstance and people are blowing trumpets and there's banners and flowers and everyone's weeping, all this kind of stuff. You realize when Jesus was installed as king of kings and lord of lords, what he had was a bloody cross and an empty tomb. I'm king. (laughs) That's amazing. And what I think is really amazing is that these people... These early Jews, what they really wanted was a kingdom for themselves. And what they got was a kingdom. It just was different than what they expected. Now let's go back to the text. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. And we're going to see this kind of pattern that Luke has for us. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is amazing. If you see the pattern here, it's really important. It's not just what the authors say, but it's how they say it. Verse 3, kingdom is the topic. Verse 4 and 5, Holy Spirit is the topic. Verse 6 and 7, kingdom is the topic. Verse 8, Holy Spirit is the topic. So what's happening is every time the disciples are engaging in the thought of the kingdom... Kingdom, Jesus goes, yeah, but Holy Spirit. And they go, ah, I know, but kingdom. And he goes, ah, Holy Spirit. Kingdom, Holy Spirit, kingdom, Holy Spirit. So you guys are thinking about kingdom stuff, great. But I need you to understand as you think about kingdom stuff, you must think about Holy Spirit stuff. Oh, yeah, but what about the kingdom? I know, guys, I know. As you think about kingdom stuff, think about the Holy Spirit stuff. Do you guys see the pattern here? And what's beautiful about this is this is how Luke is helping us to understand the kingdom of God and its relationship to the Holy Spirit. In one way or another, the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the kingdom of God. These things are profound. In fact, Jesus says this in Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or in other words, you guys had your hope of a restored kingdom and a king because of what Moses and the prophets and Psalms foresaw. And I'm telling you guys, I'm him. I'm here. 
those promises are being fulfilled. And so he opens their minds to understand the scriptures and he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he makes this promise. The Holy Spirit is coming. He's coming. Now let's jump into verse 6. The disciples are gathered. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He then speaks about the spirit. And then they say this. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin comments on this question by saying this. There are as many errors in this question as there are words. Why? Because they just didn't get it. They're asking the wrong question. But the question has two parts. It's a timing and it's a content part. In other words, it's, well, when is all this going to happen and what exactly is going to happen? And a lot of people look at this question and they read verses 7 and 8 and they go, oh, I see what Jesus does. He stiff arms them. They're like, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Uh, when is the kingdom going to all come about? And he goes, oh, guys, that's way above your pay grade. So why don't you just go over there and eat some fish or something? <laughs> That's what it seems like. But, but, but let's look at this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So you see the timing aspect. You see the kingdom of Israel aspect. And so he answers it in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus answers the timing question. When? And they go, and Jesus says... It's not for you to know. In fact, at the end of verse 5, I already told you, it won't be many days from now. I just can't tell you which day. But it's not many days from now. And then you see verse 8. What's the first word of verse 8? But. Okay, so if you have a question and somebody says, oh, I like your question. I can't answer that, but. What are you anticipating? Ah, they, well, they, yeah, they're going to answer. I, I think they're going to give me an answer. Well, yeah. So when's the timing of the kingdom? Ah, dude, I can't give you that. But I will answer you this. So here is the answer to the question about the kingdom of God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is significant. So when they ask the question, when, Jesus says, it's not for you to know. But they say, well, what is it? What is the kingdom of God? He goes, this is what it is, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And so the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they wanted so desperately to have their national power restored. Well, guess what? Don't settle for national power when you get the infinite power of the Holy Spirit. Did you guys see that? And they're like, oh, we want our nation back. We want our little sliver of land next to the Mediterranean Sea. We want that back. Guys, guys, don't settle for that when you are offered the whole world. And, and then it's like, well, well, we really want a Davidic king who will reign in Jerusalem. Why would you want that when you get a king who is God who's reigning from heaven? Do you notice that everything is an upgrade? And, and so I think what Jesus is trying to say, guys, I know that you hope for a restored theocratic nation of Israel, but I got to get your eyes higher than that. You got to hope bigger. You want power 
to have your own laws? How about this? You have the infinite power of me living in you. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but we want our nation back. Don't worry about that. You're inheriting the world. Oh, that's upgrade. Yeah. Yeah, but we want a king. Guess what? I am king, Jesus says. I've conquered the grave. I send it to my father. I reign and rule. And guess what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. So all of their hopes are being fulfilled, but in a way that they had not anticipated. And for the better. And so Jesus is trying to remind them, guys, you want a restoration? You have it. It's just way better than you ever thought or imagined. And again, when your whole life and expectations are set up in one way and somebody comes over and just totally disorients you, it takes a while for you to get your equilibrium back, right? You're just like, whoa, that's earth shattering. Yeah, you're right, it is. Dead dude came back to life. How's that not earth shattering? That's amazing. So the restoration and redemption that so many people were seeking is here. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, what he did was he ushered in what is called the new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Jesus' bodily resurrection, he united the things of heaven with the things of earth in a perfected manner. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not just dying and and blasting out of these earth suits and, and just floating with God in some kind of weird thing. We, we do know we're getting a body back, right? Where we're going to run and play. Where we're going to skip stones and swim in creeks. We know that there's a garden in the new creation, right? We're going to climb trees and eat fruit. We do know that we're going to lay in the warmth of the glow of the glory of God. Where we're going to play and laugh and create. We know these things, right? And all of these things have been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus' resurrection is what brings about the new creation. And the new creation is our final home. That's what it means to be home. When everything is put right again, everything is restored. So how do you get into this kingdom? And here's the work aspect of it. Is that clock right? Can't be right. All right, it is. How do we get into this kingdom? I skipped a verse, if you were paying attention. I skipped Luke 24, 47. And it says this, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Luke records the promise of Jesus. Beginning from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, you're going to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that is how you get in the kingdom of God. Partner that with Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Do you see the relationship? You will be witnesses. You will proclaim. Starting from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. We are witnesses of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ through the Spirit. But we don't have to do this alone. I know how it is. I mean, when you talk about witnessing and you talk about outreach, people get clammy hands and sweaty armpits. And, oh, blah, 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 and I'm, I'm, I can't do it. It's weird. 
And you even see it in movies all the time where it's like that, sometimes it's depicted as that awkward moment. It's like, have you found Jesus yet? And the other person is like, I didn't know I was looking for him. <laughs> and it's just so awkward. But here's what I love about what Jesus promises about the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper. Look at what he says in John 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send you to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to witnessing about the glory and majesty and beauty of Jesus, you are not alone in that endeavor. The Holy Spirit is with you. And I know what it is. We're all deathly afraid to share about the good news of the gospel because we feel that unless we present it in the most perfect way and we persuade these people with our eloquence or whatever, that these people are doomed unless we do a perfect job. What kind of pressure is that? Literally, eternity is hanging on your shoulders. Well, you better get it right then, guys. No pressure, though. Only the pressure of hell. Do you feel the weightiness of that? If you don't share it the right way, they won't respond the right way, and they're going uh, to die and go to hell, and that's your fault. So you better get it right. Well, no wonder why anybody shares it. Like, well, it's better for me to just not say anything to get something wrong. But here's the reality. The Holy Spirit is witnessing to Jesus. He is our helper. Remember what he promised, John 14. He will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance what I have taught you. You're not endeavoring in this adventure alone. You are going with the presence of Almighty God. So we don't have to fear what to say. We don't have to fear what people might do to us. Let them fling the swords and let them speak badly about us on social media. Ooh. Who cares? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to whomever he pleases whatever he pleases. And I love that thought. So God has not given us pressure, you guys. It's not like God is going to backhand you if you don't share. And if you don't do it right, then he's really going to get you. He's granted us a promise. As you go and make disciples, I will be with you. I will be with you. And that's his promise. Uh, the apostle Peter took this seriously. We're going to end with this because I'm out of time. Acts chapter 3. Here's Peter's sermon. Here's Peter's sermon. He concludes all this. How do you get into the kingdom? You have to repent for the forgiveness of sins. Look at how he says this. Chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. So this is him preaching, proclaiming that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I sin. And it stinks. And I feel incredibly burdened by it. And I feel incredibly weighted down by it. I feel guilty and shame and embarrassment. And when I read words like this, repent and turn back that your sins may be forgiven so that you may have refreshing. That sounds good. Because there's so many people in this room and outside of these walls who are so burdened by sin and so enslaved by it that the thing they long for mo most is refreshment. I just want to be liberated. I want to be freed from this. Well, guess what? We have the news to share so they can experience that. So burdened co-workers, 
needing refreshment, they can have it. Burdened people who are just inundated by the enslavement of sin, they can be liberated. How? By the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit who applies the redemptive work of Jesus and restores us anew from the inside out. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. No wonder why we're called new creations. And then look at this in verse 21. Jesus is gone. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Heaven must receive him until the time for restoring all things when he returns. So we have to understand this, this, this way of thinking thing about things. You can see this in Luke chapter 19, the, the parable right before Jesus uh, has the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19. It says that Jesus came the first time, died on a cross, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God to inaugurate the kingdom. But now he's in heaven until, so there's a, there's a space of time until he restores all things or until he returns again to consummate his kingdom, to bring it in fully and finally. Now in Luke 19, he tells this parable because they were approaching Jerusalem. And as they're approaching Jerusalem, everyone's like, oh, I think he's going to establish the kingdom any minute now. And he says, thinking that they thought the, uh, the kingdom would be uh, brought about immediately, he tells them this parable about a man who receives a kingdom and then goes away. And in the meantime, in the interval between the comings, he says this, engage in business until I come again. And then in the parable, the man returns and gives everyone their reward. Jesus told that parable before he entered Jerusalem to remind us about the kingdom of God. He has come the first time to inaugurate his kingdom. And in the meantime, you and I need to engage in the king's business, which is witnessing to the glory, the majesty, the grace, and the mercy of Almighty God for the refreshment of the souls of sinners in anticipation for the hope when Jesus returns, he will put everything right again. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows. We will fully and finally experience all that God intended for us in the new creation for his everlasting glory, our everlasting joy. Amen, amen, amen. So, Father, help us, I pray. This is such good news, Lord. There, there's really no way to thank you enough or adequately for all that you've accomplished on our behalf. But, God, I ask and I beg you, that you would help us as a church to get a vision for just how beautiful you are, for how magnificent your work is, and how truly, truly life-changing this message is. God, grant us this vision so we can leave here not burdened, not feeling shame and guilt and fear, not feeling pressure, but leaving here with a sense of delight that we have a story to tell to the nations of a God who's loved us so much that he came to rescue us, to deliver us from sin and death, and to grant us citizenship in the kingdom of his beloved son. God, we thank you so much for these things and more. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name.